Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by somebody who was incredibly important to my career, Lindsay Middlebrook, my first goalie coach, my Bantam coach, somebody who taught me so much about the game. Our careers in the National Hockey League really had a lot in common. We both played 30-something games and really had to work for everything we had. The sound quality on this episode isn't the greatest, but the content is so good. I hope you'll stick in there, listen to it, because Lindsay's got a lot of amazing things and stories. Enjoy. This is such a thrill to sit across from you and do this. I mean, how far do we go back now? No kidding. 30 years, I think. I I look back at the old outdoor rink at Kirkwood and coming out and, and, uh, Michael, get up, get up. Get up, (laughs) yep. (laughs) I learned all my basics from you. I mean, we can, we'll have to go back into our story a little bit, but before we even talk about our relationship, let me find out about you becoming a goaltender from, you're from Ontario to start. And then you ended up making your way to St. Louis University. Kind of an odd path. So how did that play out for you? So I grew up in a, in a call it with Sega Beach, 100 miles north of Toronto. Youngest of six boys. They, uh, there was really no organized hockey in this small town. But when we we moved to Toronto when I was six, all my brothers were older. So they really didn't have an opportunity to get, you know, they all played hockey, but not as serious. But I was the youngest of six, and they're like, you know, now we're going to get Lindsay into it. And I remember the very first year I played, I started out as a forward. And about five or six games into my first year, our goalie didn't show up. And I remember the coach asking for a volunteer to play goal. And my brother pipes up, Lindsay will do it. You got forced into it. Forced into it. And I think, I think that day... I think I had a shot out, but it was because I don't think I had a shot on that whole game. It's a perfect you game. Know, and, you know, Couldn't have gone any better. And, and then you, uh, one thing leads to another. The goalie ends up coming back a couple of games later. He ends up leading the league in scoring that year. Now it's house league, you know. And, but I end up in goal from there. and uh, So I've never really forgiven my brother since. <laughs> but uh, And then, so, so you do that. You, 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 you go through youth hockey all the way in Toronto and that. Um, I actually, when I was 15, I found out about St. Louis University, uh, uh, a guy that coached me, Sherry Basson. Sherry, uh, he owned the Erie Otters at one time. I don't know if you know Sherry at all or know the name of at all, okay. But Erie of the OHL yeah. at the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but he, uh, that was after, but he was coaching me in midget hockey. Somehow he knew Bill Selman, who was a coach at St. Louis U., kind of did some recruiting from for him, okay? So I knew about coming to St. Louis the following year to start college, but that year I went to Sudbury. Sudbury Wolves is their first year in existence, and I went up there to camp because I realized that you could go to camp there if you didn't uh, take money or you didn't stay in a hotel or you had X amount of days or something still to keep your eligibility for college. And went up there, no dreams of ever at 15 making it or whatever. But they had a 20-year-old goaltender there, still remember, named Bob Volpe. And uh, they were looking for a young kid to back up and groom. Had a good two or three days there. 
I remember the guy, Tom Watt, was, was the Canada coach at one time. He uh, he was a coach there, and he said, uh, we'd like to sign you, and you won't play much this year, but we want to get you ready, you know, whatever. And I remember going home and calling my brother Kyle, and I said, holy shit, they want to sign me. And he's like, get your ass out of there as fast as you can. <laughs> but I had to go back to this guy and tell him, no, I... I've got, a, I've got a scholarship or whatever. Right. I don't remember what I told them, but I mean, they didn't even want to pay my bus fare back to Toronto. You know? <laughs> so, waited around, played junior hockey that year in, in Toronto, and then uh, uh, junior B hockey or whatever, and then went to St. Louis from there. Uh, spent four years there, like I mentioned. What, what were your thoughts going to St. Louis, though? You know, I... It's a Division One hockey program, but it was kind of new, and I can't imagine coming from Toronto, you're thinking, I'm going to St. Louis, I'm going to make the NHL. It must have been well, a different thing in your head. It, it, I, I don't know that it was, because it's always been, I guess, and I wouldn't recommend this to to any young aspiring hockey player, but I always just knew that, I, I just knew I was going to make it to the NHL. And I had a big faith in that, and... Truthfully, put all my eggs in one basket, and I don't recommend that because you look at how many people don't make it. But it, for me personally, it seemed to work out. But uh, we thought, me and my brothers, thought St. Louis would be a great spot because every Saturday night, the Blues, St. Louis Blues played. We played in the same, the Checker Dome or the arena. Same as rink as the blues. So you were going to get a lot of exposure so from this. So we played Friday night and Sunday afternoon. So you always had teams coming in, scouts coming in to watch the NHL game. Said, oh, we got a college game the night before, whatever. So even though it was kind of new and on its own out there, yeah. we thought it was probably the best place to be. And, and at the time, Emil Francis was a GM at St. Louis. Being a former goaltender, was only five foot six himself. I thought, hey, you know, this might be the best place for me. Even I had a couple offers from Wisconsin, but the middle of Wisconsin wasn't as accessible to NHL scouts as St. Louis U was. Right. You know, so uh, that was kind of the reason that we, that we picked SLU, just because of what could happen. With that said, jumping ahead, my senior year, they ended up St. Louis U picked Mike Layute. When he was at Bowling Green, where we played against each other all the time, and our stats were very comparable and everything else, and I'm thinking like, I think I even, you know, you run into the Blues all day long because of being at the same rink as they were. I remember asking Miss, you know, Mr. Mr. Francis, what uh, I played against this guy all my life, you know, for four years in college, and uh, you know. I didn't say I owned him, but I had my... Yeah, you played well against him, obviously, yeah. And uh, <laughs> There's a pride factor. And, and, and I'm right in your backyard, and, and how come him and not me? He didn't really have an answer, and, uh, you know, whatever, I don't remember, whatever, but... Now, with that said, it wasn't a bad choice that he made, after all, you know. Yeah, it worked out. But, uh, so, that got me in slow, and then, uh, then um, uh, the story I was telling you previously about um, my senior year, they were... They were kind of pushing me for uh, to be the first All-American out of St. Louis U. So there was a few articles trying to push that. And it was right. internal. St. Louis U was trying to push it. Big feather in their cap, whatever, stuff right. like that. 
Um, so you had a little juice behind you for yeah, a, for I, a five I, six goalie. Oh, that exactly, was, you know, exactly. You know, <laughs> battle, had, battling had your stats, way through it. And we had won some. Uh, at that time, they only took to get to the final four. They only took two teams from the east, two from the west. We were this new central collegiate division, so we would go out. We'd beat beat. We'd beat Boston University. We'd beat all the biggies. I mean, we probably had, if not the best team in college hockey, two years in a row, top two or three or four. Wow! But neither year, when it come down to the votes, did they go outside their two from the east and two from the west. So we're sitting at the end of the year, and three of the four teams that go, we beat during the year. Yeah. Hell. So we never got a chance to go to the four, but then I, uh, so the senior year comes around, it's my draft year, and uh, I get a call from Atlanta. Atlanta, uh, the guy talks to me, I don't even remember who it was, but he said, hey, we, we wanted to call and make sure that, one, you'll, you'll come if we draft you, and of course I'll come, you yeah. know. <laughs> said, well, you know, it looks like around the fifth round is, is where we're looking to to slot you, they're great. So going back to that day, that's uh, uh, what I can't remember. Year '68, '69, somewhere in there. There were no cell phones. There were no computers. There were no way. The only way you found out about whether you were drafted, unless you were a first round draft pick, and they picked up the phone and called you that day or whatever. You weren't hopping on the internet to find out. Yeah, yeah. When you're a fifth rounder or lower, you found out. The only way you found out was was the newspaper. So the draft was. Draft was one day. That next that next morning, me and my brother are sitting on, in on, in Toronto, underneath a lamppost, five o'clock in the morning, pitch dark out, waiting for the paper man to come and load up the papers in the in the paper boxes that they used to have. He comes and bundles them and he puts them in. And I throw my dime in there to get my paper. We open the door. We pull a paper out. Scramble the sports section. We opened up. You can hardly see under the light. Atlanta, fifth round from St. Louis University, Brian O'Connell. Like, what? Not Lindsey Middlebrook. What happened, you know? How many games had that guy played that season? Brian played two games out of the 42 games that we played. It happened to be one of the two games that he played while the scout was looking and thought he was coming. He was told to come down and look at me. So he assumed that it was me in the net, and he didn't check the stat pack. Obviously, I guess what? <laughs> but I, I still I have a I have an article from the Toronto Sun that is it goes into this in detail, and they end up firing the scout, and they called me back. They drafted the wrong guy. Oh, they drafted the wrong guy, and they called me and and told me it was a mistake, and would you? Be interested in coming as a free agent to camp, and I said. And at that time, I said, "Well, give me a little bit of time." So we started letter writing. Me and my brother Kyle, we wrote every NHL team, every WHA team at the time was still in there. So you weren't work, working with an agent or anything. You no, were doing no agent, basically yeah. self promotion for this. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no agents. Just my brother was my agent. Yeah, you know? and we sent out letters. And I remember getting letters back and I got a letter back from the Vancouver Canucks and in in the letter it had a schedule of their games, a magnetic schedule of their games and a, and a note and I still remember the little notepad from the desk of 
Harry Neal or, or, or somebody, I'm not sure who it was. It was a GM. And all it was was scribbled in pen. It says, try St. Louis, kid. It's closer. Oh, thanks. That's nice and of that, you. And, that, you know, and I got multiple other letters, and they were all very professional. Yeah. You know, due to budget cuts, we really can't bring in a free agent, and we'll look further at you or whatever. Da, da. But then one day, I get a, uh, a letter from the New York Rangers saying, we'd like to invite you to, to rookie camp. And, man, that was the big day. The very next day, I get a letter from the Detroit Red Wings. We'd like to invite you to camp. So now there's a little dilemma here. So <laughs> it's like, which one? I got two out. Which one do you pick? And they were just invites to camp. They yeah, weren't yeah. contract Oh, offers, no, no. So it's not like you had to, come. you know, negotiate <laughs> one off the other. Right, and so. these, were, these were rookie camps. These right. weren't even the main camp, you know. So which one do you pick? Pick the New York Rangers solely on it came first. Yeah. Looking back over the years, and when you finally get on the computers, Rangers happen to be have two goalies under contract for their like four different affiliates, and Detroit had like nine or ten. So I think if I had gone to Detroit, you probably would have been there for two or three days and been gone because they had a lot of guys under contract already. So you happened into a great scenario with the Rangers. I lucked into it without knowing. Now you can investigate so much now. You know, not only what, how many years a guy's got left, how much he makes, you know, all all these things that come into play when you're a free agent, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt, you know. And there's a story about Edmonton that will come in later on that, you know. But so I, um, I, I sign that I'd like to come to camp, <coughs> train all summer. I go to the rookie camp is in uh, Quebec, some town in Quebec. We go there for four or five days, and they end up picking five guys out of 60 to go from the rookie camp to main camp. And I happen to be one of them. How many goalies? Uh, there had to be eight or more, you know. Um, but you got your foot in the door at that point. Got my foot in the door. Uh, again, in hindsight, or le- reading a couple articles, I remember uh, John Ferguson, who was the GM there. Um, I think I reminded him of Gump Worsley. Think it was due to your height? Yeah, yeah. No. Hopefully not the weight at that time. <laughs> but, but certainly... Certainly a small little goaltender, you know. Gump didn't catch with his right hand, though, like, yeah, like both true. of us. Right, so, right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but he took a liking to me. Um, now, you had to stop pucks. He's not going to take a liking to you if you're getting lit up all night. But right. I, <clears throat> I get to main camp, you know, and it's now I'm, I'm from Quebec. They fly us right to New York. And uh, still remember the first, first day of practice. It's all kind of a whirlwind, and, and all of a sudden you're going in. First time down the ice, it's Phil Esposito yeah. coming down, and he did something I've never seen before. And, and he's not—he's laughing and everything else. But he comes down and he flips from right-handed to left-handed, and roofs one on me. And it was like a zing, right? In the, you know, like one thing to flip hands and kind of whatever. This guy like so, the, and it goes by me, and I'm like, like, am I really in this league? Should I really? Should I even be here? You know, you really for that moment question whether you would 
maybe I'll just take my gear off and go home. So, so how long did it take you to start feeling comfortable, though? I mean, you eventually ended up getting a contract with them and going to New Haven, right? Right. By, by the um, by, the end of the practice, you start stopping them a few times or a lot or whatever. And so it was just it was just a fleeting moment where I thought, oh, what am I into? Been over my head here. Right. By the end of practice, but I can, I, you know, I can, I can handle it. I can handle my own. I'm not going to embarrass myself. I don't think, you know. So you're in New York, and obviously there's 25 newspapers and reporters and all that, and so it goes. And, and he has a, a couple of good scrimmages or whatever, and that to the point where the press is kind of like, "Who's this goaltender here?" You know, no one ever heard of you. You weren't drafted by them or nothing, and but he's playing well enough that you know, kind of like. The press kind of embarrassed the Rangers into having to play him. Like, yeah. how can you not give this guy a, a crack, you know? So you get a, an exhi- a half of an exhibition game. So your brother Kyle wasn't feeding him PR, though, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> he never told me that, but okay. it wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't shock me, <laughs> really. But, uh, I, I, you know, you play, I don't know who you play, maybe the Islanders or something. Man, you happen to have a good game, and, and the Islanders being that good of a team, right. if you show well against them at sure, that time, legitimate, you yeah. know. And so I, I really seem to get the newspapers behind me. You know, like you the press kind of working this, for you, this guy. Yeah, exactly. You know, not even realizing it, but they're kind of. I think they're pushing the the, the pressure on. Like, guy just played really good. You, you got to give him another game. You know. Right. So one thing, you know, I think I get two or three exhibition games. Each one gets a little bit better, and I play a little bit better in it. So it's like the last last exhibition of the season, and it's uh, we're playing Washington. And very by this time, all the regulars are playing. Right. So it's really it's deep in camp. Deep, yeah. And you've stuck along. You've been around the whole time, though, right. too. I mean, that in itself was something that was going to help you out down the road. Not just oh. you weren't a first cut. I mean, you're sticking around. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm down to the, down the wire. Right. And, and there's a little. And bit you still of, don't have a contract yet. So, oh no! Now there's a little bit of talks about. Again, one of the reporters is, man, you, you know, you're gonna have to sign this kid or whatever. Yeah. You know? So, but I let in the first two shots that score. They weren't bad goals, but it was just a factor of two shots, two goals. Right. We end up coming back and winning four to two. But I think at at that moment when I let in the two, figured that was the end of end of my time, you know, but I finished real strong in the game, we come back to win, we go to practice the next day, and they, on the chalkboard, is the starting roster for the season, and in that is John Davidson and myself, uh, Doug Sotart, yeah, Doug was, was my a, GM in Omaha, uh, okay. and his son Denny was my equipment manager in Dallas oh, the last no couple of years. Yeah, so he was the guy they were grooming for the backup job there. Right, he had played New Haven for a year or two, mm-hmm. and he was being groomed. Zill uh, Graton was in camp. Um, a Swede, Swedes were fairly new. Swede named Hardy Astrom. Astrom was supposed to be this great European guy that was going to come in and stop everything. He, and here comes this five six wonder yeah, kid out of St. Yeah, Louis yeah, University. Yeah, and uh, man, you saw that list. I think I almost fainted when I saw the list. So I'm I'm on the roster to start two days later in the very first season game, coming from free agency or a walk on at rookie camp to make in this team. Wow. 
So I go back that night and in the hotel, I've got a stack of messages. Remember those little pins I used to put paper right. in the stack on? They still use them in restaurants on Twitter right, tickets right, on them. Right. Yeah. It's gotta be there's gotta be fifty of them on there. Well, thirty of them are agents. You know? Like these guys are like leeches. It's like minute <laughs> minute they found the guy that was gonna get a contract, they're all over him. So You were a hot commodity. Oh really, really, you know. I was for for a week there, I was hanging out. This is the same year of uh, the Maloney brothers. Yeah. Uh, Donnie Murdoch, uh, Rod Gilbert. Was Ronnie Duguay there yet? Duguay was a rookie there. How was his hair back then? All along, and beautiful. He had the best hair. He was the prettiest guy that ever played the game, you know? But I, <laughs> so you're hanging with these guys. I'm hanging what? with these guys. We're going to Studio 54, which is a big disco. We're seeing Cher. We got, uh, oh, the, the art of Andy Warhol. These guys here you that I'm serious? drinking with and... I think half of them were doing coke at that time. But, yeah, but right. Yeah, I, I would thank God I didn't know anything about that. But uh, but just that 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 whirlwind week was just like, is this really happening to me? Right. You know. I mean, it's the New York Rangers too. It's not like you were with oh, the Atlanta right. yeah, Atlanta right. Exactly. Flames, right? This is the news capital of the Big Apple. Yeah. You know. Well, what happens is I back him up the first game, and what I've been told is that. The owners of the Rangers were very concerned that how do we in the New York, in the Big Apple, how do we come upon having some goaltender cracking the lineup that we didn't draft, we didn't, you know, whatever. So a day or two later, they had a supplemental draft and they ended up picking up Wayne Thomas because they were afraid or embarrassed, I don't know what word. Right. That you got this no-name guy playing for the biggest team in the country or whatever, you know. So within a week, I get sent down to New Haven. So I go down to New Haven, disappointed but still feeling pretty good about things. You made got the a team. contract. The guy said, you know, the guy said to me, "Here's you're talking about money. The minimum salary the year I signed in the NHL was forty-five thousand dollars." It's about and the I, minimum in the American League now. That's right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, if there's anybody that probably deserves the minimum, it's probably me. Right. Walk on, and you know, nobody. And uh, I remember Eagleson, my brother Kyle, worked at City Hall in Toronto, and they were knew each other. Alan Eagleson, yeah, Alan infamous. Eagleson. Yeah, yeah. At that time, he was the, he was the guy to have. You know. Right. Um, he says to me, he says... Before he ripped everybody off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He says to me, he says, uh, what do you think What do you think you wish you're worth or what do you, you know? And I'm saying, you know, pretty much 45, 50,000. Whatever they'll give me. He, he says, uh, where do I get you 100 grand? Like, you know, holy shit. Where do I sign up with you? Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, damn it, if he, if, sure enough, he gets me 100 grand in my first contract. But it's a, it's a, not only a two-way, it's a three-way contract. Uh, so American League was 16-5. So he bumped up the top end. He screwed you on the yeah, bottom end, probably. I end up never collecting any money with the Rangers. Yeah. So I get uh, 16-5 in New Haven and 12 in the International in Toledo in the American International League. But you're still playing pro still hockey. Playing Your foot's in the door now, though. So I, uh, it, it's funny because he... Uh, 
when I go when I get sent down to New Haven. Now Parker McDonald was a coach at New Haven. He had had Doug Sotart for two or three years there. They felt like he got screwed with the Rangers because I got in there. I come back from New Haven. There's no way he's playing me ahead of his butt his his goalie Doug. Doug plays all the games. I go from making the Rangers roster to not even playing in the American League because of Doug. And, and the only games I do get are on the road against maybe the toughest team. You're getting the shit sandwich games. It. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Here's the backside of the back-to-back <laughs> after travel <laughs> yeah. when the guys yeah. can hardly get off the bus. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, So that's, and, that's and what then, led you to Toledo then, right? But then eventually, so down in New Haven, you got the Swede, Hardy Astrom. You got Joe Gatton. You got Doug Soltart and me. The time's making two hundred thousand a year just for being there, whatever. I'm the low man on the totem pole. Ten games left in the season, I get sent down to Toledo, and I end up playing there, and end up starting right away, and we go and win a Turner Cup that year. You know, so good finish to a crazy year. Had to be cool to win a championship there, right? I mean, you, you know. To and me, Toledo is a wild rink too. The old oh, barn with no. the glass that was like a foot high. I played in it too. It, it, yeah, it, it the last year it was crazy, in existence. I mean, it, it was probably the craziest place to play that I've ever played in. That original yeah, Zamboni nuts. that you could see oh, the ice that, coming up that, and around into the bowl. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, uh, we played the seventh game of the finals at home in in Toledo. Had to be ninety degrees because it was probably sometime in. It was like a week before my wedding. When I when we when we planned our wedding, figured oh May twenty seventh, no problem. But as I kept on moving along, we got closer and closer. I had to fly out of Toledo to St. Louis for the rehearsal dinner and the rehearsal, then back to finish up and play the seventh game. And uh, honestly, it is so hot outside and in that building. And it is filled. They're hanging from the rafters. Oh, smoking right over the edge. And there's no glass behind the benches. You're sitting in the by, stands. By the end of the first period, it is so foggy in there, they've had to stop the game probably six times to everybody get on the ice and skate around to try and clear the fog. It's like we used to have to do in Granite City or Afton here in St. Louis in Youth Hockey. Exactly, you know. And they swear to this day, we're up 4-1 after the first period. Port Huron flags, and uh, Rolly Bouton was the other goaltender all time. You know, so uh, we're up four one after the first period. We come out for the second period. There's got to be a, an inch of water on the ice, and the fog's back in. They think the coach at Toledo, who's a legend, Ted Garvin, <coughs> they think he pulled the boilers and stopped stopped the ice making. Turn the compressors Turn off. Turn the compressors off. We played two periods in in. I'm not exaggerating. We had to stop playing to skate around 15 to 20 times in, in this period. Bro hockey. They would Turner shoot. Cup finals. The puck would shoot, and there was so much water on it, the puck wouldn't move. You know, it's like, it would just go out and stop. And, yeah. And, it's like, and we stopped and played. And it took about three hours to play this, two periods. And uh, 
they scored a couple. We ended up winning four three in water. I mean, you didn't want to go down because you guys got soaked, right? And your pants used to soak everything oh, up. Yeah, they're then. now four hundred pounds each. Group. Right. So that ended up the first year. So. What was your what was your equipment like back then? We were talking about it a little bit before we started recording that there was a big fear factor involved in it. It's a lot different than it is today. Oh, that's uh, that's the most uh, amazing thing to me is the kids that I coach now. Um, they're I look at their equipment and they're just like not only is it light and mobile, but for as light as it is, it's just so protective. These kids are taking shots that would have brought me to my knees. And they flinch them off like it never, ever happened. You know, I mean, I can't remember the last time I had a goaltender, coaching a goaltender, where he had to come on the net and drop to his knees to, to fix something or take a shot or whatever. I mean, these guys are invincible now, you know. Back then, man, that stuff there was, uh, it was like cardboard to shoulder pads, you know. I mean, leg pads protective back then, you know. I mean, even though they were filled with deer hair and... and heavy as shit yeah. <laughs> uh, they were protective you never felt shots through them you know but the arms must the have been arms, brutal the arms and shoulders and being five foot six it's really hard to blast a teammate even in practice guy's shooting when he's up under the crossbar well that's that crossbar is not far from my neck right you know? so, <laughs> so different if you're six foot six two six three you know my head hovers around that crossbar so you can't really rip on a guy too much, like, keep it down. Yeah. When when they just scored. <laughs> I already am down. <laughs> so you put up with it. But it was uh, just, uh, I would say, you talk about being black and blue. Your arms, uh, just constantly. The inside, above your catching hand, you know. Black and blue on this side. Elbows above the, the blocker. Just took a beating. And, and collarbones. I'm so really surprised that you didn't get seriously hurt. I look back with a mask that you wore, old Lefty Wilson mask oh, that. Man. Honestly, you wouldn't. I wouldn't wear to Halloween. Never mind play <laughs> hockey. You know? But and you had you had some of the famous mask makers too, right? You had a Lefty Wilson. Yeah, Lefty. Who Wilson else do you have in your collection out? at home? I've got a collection at home. I've got my uh, um, old uh, the, the guy out of Boston. Uh, Ernie Higgins. Ernie Higgins. I've, I've got an Ernie Higgins mask. I wore it through college and I think my first year in New Haven. Maybe a couple of years in Winnipeg. And those were custom made, though, right? Oh, right, right. You had to go there. I mean, still, you think of the, <clears throat> you think of the Lefty Wilson. You had to wait for Detroit to come into town to play the Leafs. You had to go to the Maple Leaf Gardens, and he took you into the dressing room after the team was out. He spent all day in there making gold masks for guys who would come in. You lay down as the old plaster of Paris all over your face. You straws in your Vaseline, nose. Two straws under your nose and one under your mouth. And, you know, sometimes you start to hyperventilate. And I, I can't get enough air through that straw. Right? And this stuff, you know. And as this plaster it's of like Paris. It's like a terrible snorkeling experience. <laughs> and and as, as this plaster of Paris hardens, it starts to get hot. So now you're starting to sweat, and now you're starting to, like, a little panicky in that. But we got through it, and, and uh, you know, three weeks later, you get your mask shows up in the, in the mail. And, and I look at it now, I mean, eye holes were huge. Oh, sure. The, the, the bridge of your nose, I mean, there might have been a maybe a half inch of, of material between the two eyes. Uh, it only went, covered your facial line, 
didn't go up over your ears, uh, over your head, or nothing. I mean, it was really protecting you from getting cut, right? Yeah, More than anything you know, else. That was it. And back then, there was no padding on the inside of those. It was like right up against your skin. So the idea was that it would it would prevent you from getting cut, but you'd get hit and take your mask off, and that big goose egg would just be oh. out there, you know. So it wouldn't prevent you from having the big knots on your head from getting hit, but it did prevent the cuts. Was your Greg Harrison one a little better that you got later in your oh, career? Yeah, the Harris. Uh, well, the Harrison was the third one. Right. That was a combo. That was as good as they make, and I, I, I assume I don't know where the guys nowadays get their combo masks from, but I can't see it being much different than what I had. I mean, they're still got their big steel bars, and they get dented once in a while. You put a new cage on once in a while, right. or whatever. But, but I, I think it's as, it's probably as good as what they, for the most part, is what they're wearing today. The Higgins one, it was uh, small eye holes, kind of like the old Jock Blunt mask, or the, you know. Uh, down under your chin, way back behind your ears, all the way back. It still had a back plate, but it was a small back plate there. Where on the Lefty Wilson one, I mean, the back plate was as big as the front of it, pretty well, you yeah. know. But you had all the top of your head uh, open and exposed to that, and your ears out and everything. So, isn't it crazy to look back on it? It is. Like, it what is was a, I thinking, right? Amazing. <laughs> and, and then. I mean, as crazy as that is, and that was nuts thinking that's going to protect you. I mean, they say, oh, yeah, that was back in the 70s or whatever. So, 70s, Bobby Hill played with me in the 70s, and I think he shot the puck not too bad, you yeah. know. So, right. and then, but take, take the guys just before me that didn't wear a mask. My idol was Johnny Bauer growing up. You look at Sawchuck Bauer, Crozier, all these guys. I mean, I could, I could shoot a puck hard enough that I could rip your face open with a puck. Sure. I mean, a puck doesn't have to be going 15, 20 miles an hour. Get a little spin on it. To, it's going to cut you wide open. You, open, yeah. you know? Never mind 40, 50, 70, 80 miles an hour. These guys taking them. Look at footage of Bowers. He's down, he's out, and all he can do is stick his head in a way to stop a puck, and oh. he does it. You know, down out. You know, so, yeah, it, it's, it is what it is because they had no other options. But you look back and it's like, man, how, how crazy is that? It was nuts just wearing a Lefty Wilson mask. But at that day, that was the best they made and that was it. So then the Higgins comes along and that starts to get a little more protective and that. Start to get a little bit of foam in there a little bit now. And then you move on to the Paul Harrisons with the cage. And that was that was a lifesaver. You didn't have to worry about the eyes and, and stuff anymore. That allowed you to also... We talked about the difference in equipment and being able to dig in uh, when you didn't have to worry about your eyes because of the cage. That allowed you to maybe be a little more confident in the net. Yeah, so you could actually lead more with your your upper body right. and your head. And right. Things. You know that that was my biggest regret in in my whole lifetime of hockey is that I look at the kids that I coach now. I look at the guys that are playing in the NHL now. They've taken the fear out of the game for a goaltender for the most part. doesn't other, take much courage anymore, other than, really. Other than getting run once in a while or whatever. Yeah. But in general, stopping the puck is not a fearsome thing. When you're a combination of the equipment that I wore in my day and being five foot six, you know, it didn't take long for a, how many times a guy wind up for a shot. And it's all in practice. In a game, 
the adrenaline's gone. I don't think I ever felt, ooh, I better watch out for this one. But practice, guy winds up from 15, 20 feet out, and all of a sudden you see that puck start to wobble and stand up on end. Get your attention you in know, a hurry, doesn't it? it it's, it's coming up around your ears, man. <laughs> so now all of a sudden, instead of, instead of being able to dig in and, and stay in your crouch, now you're straightened up, now you're back on your heels, waiting. It wasn't like, I don't care if it scores, just don't hit me. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> trying, to bail, trying to bail out as fast as you can. I mean, how many times you, how many times over the years would you give the guy in practice the whole left side of the net? You'd almost be standing on the right post, give him the whole net, and damn it if they still didn't hit you on the right post. You, know, like, you, you could tell those guys were, like, you're not going to score four goals all year long. If you can't put in the open net, you're still hitting me. So. Those were your hazards in practice. <laughs> right, right. Let's let's flip back to what happened the next year because you played an entire season in New Haven, which led to your NHL debut. Right. But there were a couple of stops and things that need to happen before you made your debut, right? Yeah. So how did the next season so, and a half go to make that appearance with the Winnipeg Jets? So I go to um, I go to training camp the next year. They've got a John Ferguson and his group have left. And gone uh, uh, left New York. Uh, Fred Sherrill is uh, now the coach or GM, I believe. I go to training camp, and I don't even get in an exhibition game, and I'm sent down to New Haven right off the bat. Yeah, After making the team out of days, camp, and, days, think, you know, and winning the Turner Cup, yeah, and you know, you're carrying some momentum, and then you're off, gone. Yeah, exactly. You know, goes to show you different management. Different beliefs in goaltenders, whatever. And they get their and own man, guys too, going, right? You know, yeah. so I didn't even get a sniff. So I go to New Haven, and I, I, I remember when I get sent down, I get a call from John Ferguson, who he was going over to Winnipeg, but Winnipeg wasn't coming to the NHL until the following year. They were joining the NHL. Uh, he had called and said, "Hey, look, I heard you got sent down. Said just go play your ass off in in New Haven." And when I'm in Winnipeg next year, I'll draft you and we'll come over to think. Mm-hmm. So that made me feel pretty good. So I, I did spend the entire year in New Haven. Had a pretty good year. I think I was on the all-star team or something like yeah. that. Well, let, can I, let's talk about that for one second here. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm looking at your stats sure. from that season. And you had a 3-2-2 and an 8-8-7. And by today's standards... Right, numbers that aren't run good they now. They you out of the league, right. but you were an all-star. And those are probably good numbers. Right. You know, that that is funny, and I'm glad you brought that up because you look at over the long term of the career. I played on five different NHL teams, three which I considered pretty good teams, and two that were brutal. Okay, <laughs> and and I'll take part of that credit for being brutal too. You know, I mean, I I was no better than the guys that were in front of me, unfortunately. You know, but. Your, your stats were all based on things that were so out of your control somewhat. I mean, I went from, let me get it straight, I'm, I went from one year of, of having a five-plus goals against average to the next year of being under three, and then... It's not like you went all summer and did goalie camps right, and I, got... But, I, did, I wasn't any better that no. year than I was the year that I got like, five in, you know, and... and it showed by, you know, one year after the year I was in uh, Minnesota and had good stats there. Free agent the next year, I probably had 
six or eight teams interested in me because my stats were good in that. But then, you know. And that, at the end of the day, that's all you have is your stats, right. which isn't fair. Right. Like, I always think that goalies are actually less important than people think a lot of the time. You know, yeah. like, we can make a difference. We do. Sure. Sure. But we tend to receive too much credit or not enough credit. Kind of like coaches that you can, yes. you can win a few games for a team and you, know, and you can lose a few games. But in general, it's how the team goes for right. the most part. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, it just, and then you go, you know, after I after I go from Winnipeg, I'm now a free agent trying to find a team. Right. I can't find anybody that wants me. Because Winnipeg wasn't very good. Right. No, we were an expansion team and we weren't. And... Uh, and then, you know, the, so you go from a bad team and nobody wants you the following year to playing on a good team and having multiple offers the following year. Back to New Jersey, which was an expansion team coming over from Colorado. Right. We were terrible. Yeah. I was terrible. Gretzky so lovingly referred to it as a Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Mouse organization. Oh, yeah. right? uh, that, you know, <laughs> uh, there's a story to come shortly about the Detroit or the Jersey experience, which I need to relate to you about. Okay. But just how you your, your belief... People believed you were either good or bad, depending on where you were. And it was so unfair because years that I was wanted by multiple clubs, I don't know better than that guy was letting in five a, a night in Winnipeg. And I always, had some good defense in front of you. Know? I kind of felt this too, though, with my career, that I look at the NHL teams that I played with, and I really only played on two out of the seven teams I actually played games with at that time were any good. Dallas, Columbus. Okay. Where were my numbers the best? Where did no, I actually well, have a chance? Right, you know, right, right, and right. you know, Tampa, we were falling off the map brutal. Sure, and then, sure. you know, last year in Ottawa, quite right, frankly, right, the right. worst defensive team in advanced dance history. You know, <laughs> not not on players in any way, it's just the reality of it. Sure, so, sure. I always look back at it and thought, man, if I just would have had a real opportunity, like I mean, like a twenty game yeah, opportunity yeah. with a good team, could I have grabbed hold of that and, and became a full time regular guy? You know, did you have that same feeling? Well, the exact same thing. Mine was in, uh, mine was when I went to Minnesota. Um, I went there, had a good training camp, uh, started off well. Uh, I got sent down. Uh, Joe Malash was the number one guy. Donnie Beaupre was a rookie. Um, I think if I'm mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, they kept the three of us for quite a while. Uh, played a game or two, got sent down to Nashville, Tennessee in the Central League, played really well there, had a good year there. Late year, I get called up, oh, oh. originally when I went down, to drove down from Minnesota to uh, Nashville, I get to the rink in Nashville and there's a note saying, Donnie Beaupre broke his arm, he'll be out for six, eight weeks, turn around, get back in the car and drive back to... Was it was a note like taped to the door of the arena when it, you showed up? It, it, was, it was in. Hey, the, Lindsay, yeah. turn around. <laughs> you turn. You turn. You know? So I go back there, and it's great. Now, I think 21 games, I sit behind Joe Balash, and he's playing great, and the team's doing well. Couldn't expect it any different, you know. But um, so then I then I get once Bo prays better, I get sent back down. Then at the end of the year, I get called up. And I end up playing a couple games and, and playing pretty well to where the coach, um, I can't think of the coach at the time. And the coach comes to me and says, listen, Lindsay, we think you're going to, we're going to start you in the first game of the playoffs. 
and, and this is when you know Jill's there and, and Beaupre's there, and, and I'm getting the start. Uh, so I'm playing the second last game of the season against the Hartford Whalers, and guy comes down the wing and he, oh no, guy comes down, he takes a shot, I drop into a butterfly, rebound comes out, second shot, shoots and it scores on the rebound. I try to get up and I can't get up. There's something wrong here. I've never been injured in, in my whole life, and uh, something's wronger than me. So I slowly get up, they go back to center and face off. <clears throat> a couple of minutes before the action comes down again, guy comes down the wing and he shoots one to the far post. I go to move, and it, it's locked, I can't go. Then I, they realize that something was wrong. I get carted off the ice with game before the playoff oh, starts. Man. That's where I think, man, if I had just got my feet wet in the playoffs, you, you might have made a name for yourself that might have turned it. So you can play all you want during the season and stuff, and maybe, but come playoff time is where you get a national exposure and that. And Especially I mean, then without the day of the internet. Right, exactly. You know, exactly. papers start picking up everything that's right. happening. So that was the, the, the one regret. I wish I had, the only time I had a chance to be a, in the playoffs, I got hurt. And it was turns out it was an orthoscopic surgery. It was, so the next, but I was a free agent then, so it ended up not being able to play. But I'd had good enough stats in a few games that I played that with New Jersey coming into the league, they offered me a guaranteed spot as one of the two goalies and a pretty significant pay raise. So it was a no-brainer there. Yeah. Now you run into. What I just got out of in Winnipeg, when I look back, got back in another expansion team. Yeah. And it's like, but just the excitement of having a, a spot to play in the NHL, guarantee. So Chico Ref was the number one guy. What was Chico like as a goalie partner? I got to ask really quick. Chico was, was very good. He, he's, he's one of my favorite people yeah. in the game to talk to he now. Is, uh, he is always happy-go-lucky and... and uh, but he was, he was intense, and uh, I was still young enough and, and rookie enough that I uh, wasn't intimidated by him, but I, I, I guess I was very respectful of him, so sure. it wasn't, I didn't feel like we were equals or that. You know, I was there to try and help out, whatever, but he was great to me, but it wasn't, it wasn't like we were hanging together, you know. He was the number one guy, and, and that was fine, you know. But uh, but again, no matter how good he was, he wasn't very good. He's getting lit up regularly. And a guy who was really good with the Islanders before that. Right, hey, right. Plenty you of know, good goaltender. Show you exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't have it in front of you. It's not going to happen. So so that so, year probably went a little sideways. Then I guess being with Jersey, right? Yeah. So so um, so I'm I'm there in Jersey for most of the year, and then uh, one day we're. We're fly to Quebec and we're playing the Nordiques. Now, before we went there, sorry, I hadn't played in about 10, 12 games. And they come to me and we want to get you back in the net, you know. Let's look at the schedule and where it works, you know. They had planned on me playing Hartford, who wasn't a very good team at the time. Get you back at your feet wet, okay? But before that, we were going on a Canadian tour. I think we had uh, Canadian, Toronto, Canadians and the Nordiques. <clears throat> Chico plays against the Leafs, so we lose 7-1 or something. Close game. Yeah, another yeah. close one. A typical <laughs> game. 
<laughs> Close for about three minutes into the game. <laughs> he goes back and plays against the Canadians and with his five or six to two or something. Getting closer. He starts against the Nordiques. We come in after the skate at the beginning of the game and Billy McMillan's the coach. He comes and says, Chico's not feeling well. You're going. So, you know, kind of a last minute. I hadn't played for a month, you know. Now you find out three minutes before game time. And it's against the Nordiques who, in Quebec, probably were the toughest team in the NHL. That had all the Stazies at that time. And, and, oh, yeah. and Goulet, Michel Goulet. And, I mean, they were... Good club. These guys tended not to show up on the road a lot. <laughs> but at home in their French crowds and that, right. that's not a place you want to play. Yeah, I get in there and uh, if memory crack, uh, serves me well, they have like 22 shots in the first period on me, but we're up one nothing. Have a great first period, you know. Five minutes into the second period, they've scored three, three out of probably six shots, whatever. <laughs> I get a hook. What do you want from me, you know? Yeah. Anyway, so reporters after the game come into me in the dressing room. And I, I've never been shy in what I would say. And I said, you know, and I kind of feel like I was thrown to the wolves here. I said, you know, we had a game plan for Hartford. Then all of a sudden, two minutes before I game time, I find out, you know, play a pretty good first period, let a couple in the second, get the hook kind of feel like, you know, whatever. So that paper the next morning comes out, you know, Middlebrook's thrown to Wolves or something, you know. We're on the plane back and Billy McMillan grabs a paper and shoves up my face. He's cursing me up and down about what I said and stuff like that. And I get back to New Jersey and a day later I'm traded to uh, wow. to. Uh, uh, Edmonton. No kidding. So just being honest to a fault, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just how I felt. Uh, you know, maybe it was wrong to voice it, but heat of the moment. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and you're struggling to play and make it. Right. So anyway, so so I get uh, so I, I find out. So after we come back from Quebec, we're not we don't play for in, in uh, Quebec or sorry in uh, New Jersey. Uh, we don't play for another four games. And then we're going to have four days. And then we're going to play Washington. We're going to take a train from New Jersey to Washington to play. But we got three days off. So me and the wife, uh, we head out right after we come home. I'm pissed off because I got pulled and whatever. Um, we So we go to New Haven. We played New Haven the previous couple of years. I had some friends in New Haven. Me and the wife head out to New Haven for a day or two. Well, at that time, again, how do you get a hold of someone? No cell phones. Uh, nobody knew where we were. And you had two days off. like Two days off. Yeah. Right. Go be a normal human. Get away yeah. from the rink. Right. Yeah. Well, that morning I get traded, but they can't get a hold of me. <laughs> nobody knows where I am. I've got Mike Kitchen and John Wensinker my, live in the next uh, townhouse to us. Wow. But they didn't even know where I'd went. You know, we, I didn't think I'd have to tell anybody. I got two days off, you know. You didn't need permission. Right, 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 you know. So we come back like two days later. I guess John Wensink and, and Kitchen saw us, my car out in the garage or in the driveway, whatever. 
they come over, they've got a newspaper, Middlebrook traded to Edmonton, whatever, two days later. So by two o'clock in that afternoon, I'm on a flight to to Hartford with to play with Edmonton. Wife's at home, we got a house, townhouse, we got two cars, we got a dog, don't have any kids yet, so we're lucky there. Yeah. But it's like, hey, honey, uh, I got to run. You I mean, know, you might as well trade you to China, literally, really? if you're going to Edmonton that far away. You know. Exactly. And by the way, I just spurred my memory though. Where'd the nickname come from? China Wall. Yeah. I know she will. That was. Uh, I have no idea where it originated oh, for you. China Wall. When I rookie in, in when when I had that crazy week in uh, in New York where you were kind of the talk of the town right. for a while. Frank Beaton. I don't know if you know that name. Frank Beaton. His middle name was Never. Never beaten? No. One of the toughest guys that ever played. Played for the Birmingham Bulls. Was And you would think the story... This is a hockey team, not a baseball team, folks. Yeah, right, right, (laughs) right. You would think that this guy would have been like 6'8", 280. The stories about him fighting in hockey, I mean, this guy was legendary in our year, you know? He ends up, he's with the the Rangers, too. He's, I I meet him, and he's like 5'8", 5'9". 165. He's just a certified but, maniac. But he, the old, when he gets in a fight, the old eyes start to roll up in his head, and it's like <laughs> you're scared shit before you ever land a punch against this guy, you know. And he can take a shot, you know. I mean, you can hit him five or six; he don't care. But he's gonna get you, you know. And uh, so he he uh, he somehow come up with the China Wall nickname for me in training camp. And, you know, that was also Johnny Bauer's nickname. Right, I, I knew and that. And that, so I don't know, maybe in the time frame I had told him about Johnny Bauer, I don't remember, but somehow the, John, the China Wall nickname uh, stuck with me throughout, you know. Would guys actually call you Wall or Mr. China, hey, China or anything hey, like China, that? China, how you doing? Would they really? Yeah, China, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so that one stuck, and that, that stuck for... Two or three other teams that I went to. Incredible, you know? yeah. So, I had it on my mask in, in New Jersey yeah, when I did the know, tribute mask that, with you and Chico. Way, that was the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. Well, and what a great tribute, and man, that was, uh, that was, uh, I showed the family, it uh, brought you to tears sometimes. What was so cool about it was that, you know, it's a good time to kind of talk about our history together, really, uh-huh. too. I mean, you ran and started the first goalie school that I can remember in St. Louis that was really based here that got all the young kids into it. And I learned all my basics from you, from positioning to skating, all that stuff. I still checked my post the way you taught me to, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, when you retired to St. Louis, did you expect to do stuff in hockey and to help out the younger kids as they were moving through? I, I don't know about a goal school necessarily. I was thinking more about coaching. Yeah. You know, I wanted to coach a high school team or something like that. Um, but I do think at that time you realize that, man, there's there's just nothing out there for these kids. So it was it wasn't it was brought on by by a, a necessary thing, not because I necessarily thought of that idea first. It was kind of like cart before the horse. It was sort of like a bunch of horses out there. Now they need a cart. You know? right. so, um, but yeah, you know, that went for, I want to say 17 years we did that. And uh, we had years where we had three sessions going. We probably had, at one time, 50, 55, 60 goaltenders. And this is in, in St. Louis. Louis. In this, in right. The, uh, early 80s. 90s. Mid, late 80s, early uh, 90s. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, 
man, there was there was girl goalies, there was kid goalies. We had a married couple that were both goalies, a man and a woman that both played senior hockey as goalies. Uh, they, I mean, we had we had everything you can imagine from really weak to really good. For something that you never really expected to do like that, what was the feeling like when some of us started to go on to play pro in college and on in hockey? You know, it is it, it, that there is so satisfying. Until, until it happens to you, you can't even explain. Kind of like getting married or having a baby, you know. It's hard to explain just how wonderful those things are. But to see guys, I mean, I still remember you, Mike, and, and uh, all the way through Kirkwood and all that, but but I still can't. It's like it's like it happened yesterday. Was the Camloops uh, tournament? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean that that there is still still as vivid uh, in Camloops, British Columbia. We took a team from St. Louis, Missouri. That no one, everybody was pissed off because how did they get in the tournament when all these teams from Toronto and and all over Canada couldn't get into this tournament and. Uh, you know, we walk through, we win a few games, and next thing you know, we're in the final game against Little Caesars. Honey uh, Baked. Honey Baked. Honey Baked. Honey we were playing against Chris Connor, who was my teammate last year. Okay. Oh, I mean, yeah? Yeah, I still get goosebumps thinking yeah. about this. You ever you talked know? to him about that? Oh, yeah, we talked up? about it. I was actually watching the video of it this summer. And I sent him sent him a quick video of it. You got to send me the whole thing because he didn't have it anymore. Okay. This is 22 years ago, yeah, and I'm well, still getting goosebumps yeah, thinking about you know, it. You know, and man, we just uh, we end up. And remember, before the game, the, the day before, when they found out that we won, and, and they were like, "Oh, this is in the bag. We, we've got the championship," and they were they were almost partying already, thinking that, "Oh, we got a St. Louis game," you know. And I think, I don't know if we got down a goal or two. We were down or, two and came back. And then we came back, and, and I think it was a five-minute penalty that changed the game. And, and then, but the last three minutes of the game, the puck never left our zone, our net, nope. our zone. They were peppering you left and right. and uh, We did the, it, though. You did it, and, uh, yeah. Uh, so much then fun. Then I look uh, on Facebook, and there's uh, I see Chris Bentler on the Facebook a lot. Yep, yep. And I think back to... Uh, He's the one that went through the glass pane. He did. Yeah, so we had a guy on our team named Chris Bentler. He's going to love it that we tell this story. But we go to Kamloops for the most prestigious Bantam hockey tournament in the world. And this kid goes through a plate glass window, nearly cuts his arm off, and he can't play in the tournament. Oh. <laughs> a buddy of his body checked him into the into the building. It happened to be a glass building. And I remember this this big glass pane of glass broke. And the big, big piece from the top of the window come down just like a guillotine. Yeah. And slice his arm up, and I remember we're sitting in a, having dinner at, at a restaurant, and one of the guys running down, and coach, 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 Chris is cut, he's hurt. Da, da, da. And we run over from dinner over here, and by this time there's a right across from where he got cut, happened to be a some kind of a EM emergency room yeah. something. They had a doctor or a nurse come over and help, and. But man, he was crazy. He was—he was in rough shape. But he was. a kid. We hadn't even played our first game, and he's—we already got our injuries, you know. So <laughs> we had to grind. I mean, for for people that don't know, though, the Kamloops tournament really is the most prestigious Bantam tournament. And for us from St. Louis, I think it really put us on the map as a hockey city. I—I I think when you look back, our team winning Kamloops, and then a few years later, uh, I think it was McKinnis who went and won the Pee Wee tournament with those right, kids. Right. Okay. I think those two things really are what put us on the map. 
you know, because yeah. it was our yeah. age group that started to put players out into pro and. You know, there'd been college kids before, but not draftees like us. Right, right, exactly. And I felt like exactly. that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, I agree totally. Going back here, we kind of glossed over it, but you had an interesting experience in Winnipeg. You were telling me earlier about the fitness testing that they had there and, and just how difficult some of that was back in the day and it didn't really relate to goaltending at all. Uh, it, so, you know, you, 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 get dra- or you get drafted by Winnipeg when I'm from New York. So that when the NHL joined, when WHA joined the NHL, Everybody had to protect their rosters, so they had a draft for the new team for Winnipeg. Claim to fame, I was drafted in the second round to Winnipeg. Bobby Hall was in the third round. Now, now Bobby Hall, he, Bobby was 64 years old. We're not going to mention that. <laughs> but it doesn't fact matter. Is, uh, every time I see him, I see him occasionally. Oh, yeah. You ever make it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, he, he's a fun guy. I've always. Uh, and then when Brett Hall comes along, I get to know Brett a little bit. And because of the tie in with his father, they've always been very nice and friendly. The two stories. So, back to, to Winnipeg. One of the very first things that was sent to me was the training The training that goes on for, for the season in the summer. And we all had to. Uh, the coach at the time, his name was Tommy McVie, and he had a, uh, we had to run a actual mile in under five minutes. Now, to me, there, I don't that's think. not that, six think, minutes, five minutes. I think, yeah, I think professional runners hadn't hit the five minute I mark mean, yet. Yeah, that's like the Kenyans hadn't hit that yet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like five minutes. Here I am with legs that are 29 inch inseams. <laughs> what <laughs> size were your pads? Oh, 29 or 30. Right, exactly. They're still, I think they're still juniors, yeah. like intermediate. <laughs> so, but I spent all summer long, every single night, trying to run this mile. Not worried about training for hockey. Worried oh, about I, trying I, to yeah, run fast. Worried about stopping Isn't pucks. That, the that, that didn't bug me at all, you know. I was confident enough that I thought I could stop some pucks, but like, no way I'm going to get this. I remember, so we get to Winnipeg the first day. We show up. We, we go to the rink. We get in our shorts and t-shirts. We walk across the road to the football stadium where the Blue Bombers play. We go through the hallway out to the field. And I look up and there's like eight or 9,000 people in the stands have come to watch this McVie Mile. Oh, which no. it's not the first year he had done it. He's done it for two or three years in the WHA there. So it, it drew a crowd of people to watch this. So now I walk. This is over, a and now I know. Disaster. I already know that I the best I ever done was five thirty eight. That's hauling ass. And that's for a little guy. For a big guy, that's hauling ass. For a little guy, <laughs> they had wings on or something. <laughs> wind, wind aided or something, you know. But uh, so now I'm shitting bricks because it's like, how bad am I going to walk here if I, you know, can't do it, whatever. So we get out there. Well. It's kind of, you know, Winnipeg, one of the windiest cities outside of Chicago, right. might be the windiest city. In That's the what world. they always say downtown, that one corner where there's like the four streets. Oh, it's the windiest you know? corner in yeah. all North America. It, we go out there, and the wind is howling. So they've got it on a, it's on a, an oval, but the oval's not oval around the football field, but it's not exactly a mile. So they've marked off exactly a mile. But what they did is they put cone, they put flags where you had to run around, okay? Well, you start off 30 guys at a time, 
they run down as fast as you can. You get to this corner, everybody's almost got to come to a stop. It's like going behind the net in training camp. 40 guys trying to make a turn. That's an L-shaped turn. Like guys are running in. It's like the old marching band that runs into the street corner. On, you know, like, these guys are tripping over each other, stumbling. It's like Formula One cars piling into turn one, you know? Like it's, exactly. You know, go to the second turn. Okay, you're still going okay. Coming back the back way. Now you're against the wind. Coming down the first one, you're flying. The wind's at your back hole. And, hey, yeah, okay. Little, little back up in the corner. Now you're coming down the far side. And they got 40 mile on the winds in your face. And you're going, but the legs aren't going. I'm not, I'm not advancing anywhere. Well, you got a parachute on. <laughs> it's not going anywhere, man. Finally get down there. Were the people in the stands cheering? Oh, yeah. They're rooting you on. It's like, it was like a like a Stanley Cup game, you know. <laughs> and uh, either either rooting or laughing. I couldn't tell the difference. But, <laughs> but the good news is I wasn't alone, you know. Uh, when it finished, and I think there was two groups of 30 went. Well, they didn't post any scores. They had a, all the brass gets together, and it took about 10, 15 minutes. They, they announced over the public speaking thing, uh, due to wind conditions, we're going to uh, take 30 seconds off of everybody's time because none of the no, – I think I think one guy out of the 60 made it at the five-minute mark. Yeah. Most were 5 to 5.30, you know. It's still moving, oh, man. You know, so – they end up with that 30 second deduction that they took off. I think I was still at five minutes and 40 seconds. So, it would have, you know, so here it is. So, the next day, the first three or four draft picks Peter Marsh, myself, Bobby Hull, can't think of the fourth guy. Headlines in the Winnipeg paper the next morning draft picks make mockery of McVee Mile. None of us, none of us could hit the five minute mark. Okay, and they're including Bobby Hall in this. Yeah, yeah. Now he's he's fifty two or some shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> they're still. It's like, so I haven't even put the pads on to stop a puck yet, and I figure I'm out of here. I'm in one. You know? Yeah. So that was that was that, and uh, yeah, just just craziness. So you go back to having to be in shape, or, or you know, and even before my day, they used to come to camp to get into shape. Right. Now I know it's changed. Guys are playing year-round or working out year-round. Um, and a lot of guys had summer jobs back then, right? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that you, was you, normal. If you're going to work out, it was because eight at night because you're working until five or six, you know? Right. So, yeah, not quite the same. Not like you had the luxury of belonging to a gym or, or stuff like that either, you know? So, uh, so we got through it, but it was certainly uh, it was a wake-up call then and... Uh, uh, I don't know if they had it. I think that might have been the last year they had it because I think the embarrassment of nobody being able to make it. So. When you got to Edmonton, there was a lot of strong personalities there and, and really legendary players. I know you weren't there long, but what was it like to walk into that locker room right at the peak of when they were hitting their stride? You know, it. it, it you talk about going from – in Winnipeg, <laughs> coach believed that what made him a good coach is that he spent 24 hours a day at the rink. You know, I mean, that was his idea of, like, dedication to the game. Mm-hmm. All that, you know, one, you saved on rent from getting an apartment, I guess, but, you know, <laughs> but didn't mean that you were a better coach or that. We would practice for two and three hours at a time in Winnipeg during the season oh. to the point where guys were dead and gassed and pissed off and everything else. 
biggest thing I found when I got traded Edmonton, very first practice, 45 minutes tops, everything was just flying. The fastest practices I've ever seen. It was line rushes up and down and, and just full game speed. But if you're going full game speed, you can't go much more than 30, 40 minutes right. and be gassed. And they were great. I mean, those practices never lasted, lucky they're an hour. And they were just fast and, and going. So, you know, you, you look at the different, why was Edmonton so good? Not just because of that, but different uh, different theories in, in how to handle people on that. So going to Edmonton, yeah. Stepping on the ice and you got Messier, Curry, Coffee, Gretzky. Uh, I mean, those guys, you know, it's like still like, what am I doing here? And by that time, I've been around for a while, so I, I shouldn't have been quite as in awe as I was. I mean, you go to Winnipeg and, you know, back to Bobby Hall in Winnipeg. Every time we go on the road, you'd have to wait three hours on the bus because Bobby was out signing autographs. And he would never turn anybody down. So everybody else on the bus like, come on, guys, let's get going. You know, we got a plane to catch or whatever. And so, you know, then you go to Edmonton, lucky enough to be part of it for a couple of months. And uh, uh, I remember going to an autograph signing session in West Edmonton Mall, which is the biggest mall in Canada at the time. We get a couple miles to the mall. And they got traffic cops out there directing traffic, and it just looks like looks like downtown New York City with the traffic, just for this signing thing. So they've got three players to a lunchroom-sized table spread out through the mall, and lines for each one. And honest to God, I, here I am, a, a nobody, just got traded. Nobody knew you were even been traded, probably. But I never stopped signing autographs from probably 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You didn't even have time to look up and see who was hanging to the paper. And again, having a name like Lindsey Middlebrook uh, wasn't like Al Smith or something. You, know. you got a long name it, to sign. It took a lot of ink. Did you, you ever know. shorten it up? I, I, I started just LM30, LM33? LM <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so, I had a quick one that was like two M's together, 56, when I was really in a hurry. So I had two signatures. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's like the arms falling apart, the hands cramping up and everything else. But just like, this thing was the biggest thing going on in Canada that day. It was like, but again, Gretzky, Messi, Curry, Coffee, you know, Huddy, I mean, the list goes on, you know, to watch them perform and, and one to have played against them. And when I was in Winnipeg, I was fortunate enough to, I think one of the games I won was against Edmonton, if I'm not mistaken. And I believe that Gretzky had a breakaway late in the game. And he come in and he let one go and it hit a knob on my stick and hit the flagpole. That was back yeah. when I had like a whole roll of tape on my knob. Yep. And it rang off it and went off and we ended up winning it or whatever. And like so then, but uh, but I am a list. Uh, I am on his list of having been scored against. So I feel like okay, me and about two hundred other goaltenders that he scored on at least. At least I'm in that pile. You're in the club. Exactly. You, know, you mentioned your stick, and that's the one piece of gear I wanted to talk about because yours was really unique, and you had a, a oh, cut-off yeah. portion of it on the bottom side sure. of the paddle. What was your reasoning for that? It, it allowed me to, I think, go, which I didn't do a lot, but paddle down a little bit more, probably even then. Um, it, it, it allowed me... Uh, it allowed me we never ever turned our hands over to shoot. The Turco style grip, they call yeah, it. Now. Know, no, you, you mean, hold Mike, it like a normal player. Yeah, my, my catching glove was down there. Right. So when he had that that 
piece before, once I cut away the backside, it sat in my glove a little bit better. And, and I was never, uh, we didn't play the puck in general too much in my day. We had a few guys that could, but in general, just, and I was just mediocre at it. So in order to get any better, you, you tinker with stuff. And it seemed to help a little bit and got my glove in there a little bit better, a little more solid. And so I was able to maybe hit the glass and get it out of the zone sometimes right. or whatever. Never mind scoring goals. Yeah, the old Victoriaville sticks, right. though. And exactly. I loved it that you used to keep them on the shelves when you oh, worked right, for a sporting right, right, goods right, store right. here in St. Louis. We threw, and we threw in all the, uh, uh, the burgers and all the Patrick Waz and all those. Oh, by the way, here's some Middlebrooks. Yeah, <laughs> but you'd find this whole section of kids from St. Louis, they had a cutaway bout on the backside of their sticks. Right, right, and like, right. like, I still have offset shoulders on mine. I don't have it quite as extreme okay, as yours okay. was, but it's kind well, of the same thing. Okay. I played with it, and mine was actually a pro-return Grant Fuhrer. Because okay, his okay. shoulders were okay, a little bit off do? on that, too. So, guys used to tinker all the time, though, back then. Michael, you, you were such a equipment... Uh, uh, guru or, or whatever you want to say. Nerd geek, you take your whatever. pick. Yeah. I, I never seemed to be into it. I, they said, you know, are you, were you superstitious? I'm sure there was times I laid my gear out and I, did you put your left one on first or whatever? I don't remember if I did or not. I I may have, but it was probably subconsciously. It wasn't like, you didn't oh, no, have I got to do it. Right, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, the only thing I didn't like was once I had my stuff laid out, I didn't want anybody to touch it. Guys are coming in and mess with you, and you'll kick the pad over a little bit or something. Yeah. You wouldn't know who it was, but you get so pissed off, so mad. That was about as far as you got, you know, quirkiness for equipment or whatever. But uh, but I was one of the first guys to ever wear uh, a, a nylon faced bowl pad. Oh, yeah. And Cooper made it for me. Being, living in Toronto, uh, Cooper Factory was in Toronto at that time. And I'd go there, and they, you know, talking about getting pads lighter. It was still, still deer hair inside, but at least the face was was, of, what was the word uh, vinyl, not vinyl, but uh, nylon. nylon, like the nylon you know. Yeah, they were experimenting with new materials, lighten them up. Right, they weren't natural leathers. Right, right. Just so trying to get a little, a little bit lighter. Yeah. But I do remember taking them to somewhere in Toronto to try out. The pads, but they had done the whole face in nylon, and even on the inside. So you go down and push off and die. You'd be sliding. I find myself in a corner. You know, you, you couldn't stop on anything there. And that's what we're looking for now. Right, right, we right, want right, that, you right, know, right. because it's changed so much in how we push when sure, we're down, sure. and the skates are completely yeah, different. And yeah, it's amazing how technology's changed. I saw. It. I know we're jumping all around, but I saw one of my goalies. I didn't realize the goal skates now are. Basically, forward skate. There's without, no cowling anymore. Yeah. I'm like, holy. Oh. I mean, there's still some guys in the NHL that are using cowlings, but we're at the point now where I don't think you can even buy one anymore in a store. So all the kids have them. In five years, you won't see a cowling any longer. And, and the days of ever taking a puck off the toe, is a pad completely Pad covers it. it. You still get them off the toe, but you don't yeah. ever take them to the inside of the skate like no, you used right, to. Right. No, right, right. Skate saves are over, right? Yeah. But I tell you what, I can still do it. You taught me how to make skate saves, and... If you put 20 pucks at the blue line and tell uh, the guy to put them on the ice, I can still do it. And I would, there'd be days in practice that I would. Do it. Because the younger you. guys can't do this stuff. They right, never right. learned it. They're looking at you like, and they'd look at me and I'd go, yeah, you got to go forward and see cut and move out to the side and blew their mind. Going off oh, yeah, corner. yeah. And you'd have the puck puck shooting machine out there uh, cranking them up and we'd be kicking them out. Buddy, buddy. I, 
I love doing that though. You know, like I wouldn't use it in a game any longer right, because right, it had right. sure. passed by. But from a young age, I can still do that stuff. Again, going back to the things I learned sure. from you. Let me ask you, why do you think the art of poke checking and sweep checking is gone? Great question. I mean, we, you know, I know the game has changed, but how many times I would guy would come down on a breakaway, and I'd slowly be backing into the net, and this guy, when do they make their deep? A lot of times if they're deking you, they're only a foot from you. So, like, you didn't even have to poke it. You just had to kind of leave your stick there. And they'd run right into your stick half the time, these yep. guys, you know. But I never see poke checks anymore. Once in a blue, blue moon. Yeah. But And I know the paddle down has come in. and But that, that stick still should be a much more uh, a weapon. I think it's incredibly underutilized now. And I think it's because... So many of the kids believe in their structure and how they save pucks and their technical ability that having an active stick isn't something they even think about anymore and they're not taught because they move so efficiently now and seal the ice that, I mean, we used to have to cut pucks off too because we couldn't get to the backside, right? right, right. So you knew if, if the puck got past the other side, if you right. didn't cut it off, right. you're gone. Right. And now these kids all think that they've got a chance to get, get it over there. Okay. And it drives me nuts, though, because I see the exact same thing, where there's a guy a foot, two feet away, and I'm just going, get your stick involved. You know, attack that guy. Yeah. And you'll still see Flurry do it, Ryan Miller do it. Okay. You know, some of the older guys, still and, okay. and some young guys, too, have the ability. Right. Uh, but I don't think it's taught like it was. No. You know? no. I mean, it used to be something that we did right. an awful right. lot. I mean, it was such a... To me, it was such an important part of my game. Yeah, I learned it from Johnny Bauer and Al Smith, two yeah. goalies that mastered it, and it was just so effective for me. Yeah, and I know the game's changed and, and everything else, but man, I, there's so many. I see so many goals today where if they did use a stick like I used it, they could have made that save or they could have prevented that pass across or or the guy thrown out from behind the net out to the slot. You're, you're picking it off or whatever yep. it is. It drives me crazy, and, but it's also funny in practice when I hit somebody with a poke check. Players actually get pissed now. Oh, they, they think, yeah. I'm They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I poked it off poke your stick. Check. Sorry, buddy. Like, don't bring it into you my... can't do that. Don't bring it into my house. Right. You wouldn't do that in a game. Oh, have you watched video of me, bud? Like, I understand you're 22, but right, right, I've been doing right. this for as Wouldn't long as you've been game. alive here. Like, <laughs> I, this is part of my game, yeah, you know? Right. Like, you'd hit guys with it, and they'd just freak out. Uh, that's funny. So when you got later in your career here, and Edmonton is the last time you had in the NHL, right. what drove you out of the game? Did your did your body start to give up on you? Did you feel like it was time to transition? What, um, what made the decision I for think, you? I think one of the facts was that I'd run out of NHL teams that wanted you, showed interest. You know, you'd played for five different GMs, five different teams that, and I wasn't getting the feelers, okay? Uh, went to Toledo, back to Toledo for a year. Then I think I was in Milwaukee for a couple of years or whatever. And I do remember, you know, by that time we'd had, you know, in, in when I was in Edmonton, I got sent down to Billings, Montana. Played in Billings, Hockey Montana. Back in the 80s. It was yeah. like, I think. What the, league the, was it in? The, pardon? What league was that? In? Central? Central Hockey, right? Yeah. But the funny thing was, the, my, my, the big awakening there was after our first league game, Half a dozen guys and their wives went downtown, downtown, which was downtown Billings. Was a couple saloons, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we walk into a saloon or a bar restaurant, and they're literally got open gun. Like they're sitting there, and there's four guys, and they all got their pistols out on, on, on the table. Like, it's like we're coming from uh, you know civilized country where 
I don't know that I've ever seen a gun, never mind. <laughs> Literally the Wild West for you, right? The Wild West. Like, yeah. We all shirts and ties on suits, and they're all in jeans and cowboy shit. And it's like, <laughs> it kind of like, like the old uh, Animal House movie where they walk into that bar and, ooh, can we dance with your women? <laughs> <laughs> can we dance with your dates? Yeah. <laughs> Otis! <laughs> they love man. us! The man! Yeah. <laughs> and we were just like, okay, and I think we better just turn around and get out of here. So. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, I'm sorry, I got off track there. Um, We're talking about your transition out of the oh, game, though. Why? Yeah. So I get to Milwaukee, and uh, by this time, Montana was when my daughter Ashley was born. Yeah. And so by this time, we got a daughter that's four or five years old or whatever. Playing there, knowing that I'm near the end of the line, not getting any other interest. Or that. Still love the game, but once you don't have that drive to be at the top level, Kind of diminishes a little bit. I remember going to <laughs> the training camp after the second year, and Phil Whitliff was the gentleman that was a coach in the Milwaukee Admirals, and he wants to sign me for a two-year contract for uh, peanuts or whatever, you know. And uh, I said, enough to make a living, but is it really worth continuing? Right, right. Yeah. But I said. Why don't we just sign for one year, and we'll go from there? Well, for some reason, he took a fucking big offense to this, like almost insulted that I'm offering two years and you're only taking one. Nobody does that. I don't know why. Because uh, I, I just no. Oh, let's. And you were honest with uh, him. Yeah. yeah. Again, honesty. Yeah. Sometimes can get you sent to the minor. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then, so then he withdrew the offer totally. Won't take two, nothing. So I went home and called the wife, what went, went on. And at that time, I just said, hon, I think. Because you had a great year in Milwaukee. Yeah, you know, I think I'm just ready to ready to call a night. Let's let's pack it up and go. So, phone the back, said, hey, thanks for the no, thanks for the no offer. <laughs> and uh, we're out of here. And then you ended up in St. Louis. Ended up, and that was, you know, now it's, it's okay, the St. Louis or Toronto, you know, right. I mean, uh, I'm from Toronto, and she's from St. Louis. We had a, had a home here in the off season in St. Louis. St. Louis, not to not to badmouth Toronto, great country, great city, families back there. But St. Louis, I mean, you could make half as much money and live very well here. Mm-hmm. You know, the cost of living here is tremendous compared to Toronto. Just so many things other than family, Toronto didn't have near the things going for it that St. Louis had. So it was a pretty easy decision to uh, you know, stay in St. Louis, and yeah. love this town, and become big, big. Never knew that I was going to be a big baseball fan, but I've turned into that yeah. since my daughter works for them. And, <laughs> and then watching the Blues win the Stanley Cup again, we didn't know that we'd ever, even in my life, yeah. see it happen. Well, you know? for you that you're so ingrained with being in the same building as the Blues back in the day, did you, even though you never played within that organization, did you still feel kind of ingrained with it because you've been in the city this long and as a fan did you f- take some comfort in them winning after did, all these years I did because it was a little bit later but after I retired I, I they needed a goaltender so I played alumni games and stuff for them and then the one night I was at a game and got I think Jablonski got hurt and Joseph went down so I had to be the third man you're and, the e-bug you know, yeah. and that was it was funny because I was with a buddy from college that's from Kansas City 
and we had spent probably the last three hours before the game in the, in the little White House next to the old rink, which is the bar. Oh, good. So we're both shit-faced. <laughs> and I remember Bob Berry was the assistant coach. I'm up in the, we're up in the alumni box. And, again, Jablonski goes down. Uh, I, I just know <laughs> something's going to happen here, you know. Maybe I'm just drunk enough to realize something's going to happen. You can't drink enough waters yeah. right there sure at that enough, point, right? phone rings, it's Bob Berry. And he's talking to Bruce Affleck or somebody. He's like, hey, is Lindsay up there? Lindsay, Lindsay, uh, we need you down here right away, right away. And now I got guys feeding me coffee. I don't even drink. I hate coffee. Guys trying to feed me coffee. And everything else, you know? I stumble down there and I, I have to sign a paper release or whatever. So so that was close. And I went to, thank God. Oh, so I, I'm the second man in line now. Well, the second goaltender, whether it be Joseph or whoever it was, Rando or whatever, <clears throat> during the course of the game, he goes down. And I, there's no one yelling in the sands more than me that, get up, get up. <laughs> so, so he turns out to be okay. So I never had to uh, go in. But then I had a couple of times I had to go to Peoria. They call a guy up, emergency, somebody got hurt in the afternoon. I'd go to Peoria and sit on the bench behind the Peoria guy. And the Peoria guy would come to St. Louis and that. So I kind of got You had a relationship with the team the, that into way. That. Right? So yeah. Never was really, but... A lot of the Blues alumni guys are treat you like you're been a Blues somewhat. You know? Sure, yeah. So that's kind of tying. So yeah, you got a closeness to the Blues, and certainly uh, that little love story of this current season is just hard not to fall in love with. Pretty incredible. The way it went, you know. Yeah. For you to transition out and then do all the coaching that you did afterwards, and, and really just at the youth level and some college, was it a good way for you to stay in the game while working your regular job and still feel connected to it? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think you ask most guys, what are you going to miss most about not playing? Not going to be the stopping shots, not going to be getting hurt in practice and taking them uh, wherever. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be the dressing room. It's going to be hanging with the guys, you know. So coaching give you a way of uh, not only helping kids and, and, and that, but selfishly keeping in the game, keeping young, keeping, uh, you know, last four or five years of coaching college hockey, these kids are 22 to 25, 26 years of age, and they keep you young, and they keep you, you know, you can, you can kind of kid with them differently than you kid with 12-year-olds, you know. Um, Feel so a little they, better cursing in front of them, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and they're, they're throwing it back at you pretty good, too. So, right. <laughs> uh, so it, it, in its own way, has been good, and it's, it's kept you young. It's kept you in the game. It's kept you in the dressing rooms, you know, and they all like to hear stories. So, you know, that comes out once in a while. I'm pretty good at not uh, being too storytelling guy. You know, once we all sit around and have a couple of beers, they'll, they'll prod you a little bit more. And, yeah. and what sometimes was like? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it's been a great one, but it's just like I said. And, but I do know that when you finally do lose that passion for that, I coached the last year. The wins didn't mean much. The losses didn't mean much. I just kind of—I actually felt that maybe I just wasn't giving my best to the game anymore. You know, I was cheating the kids a little bit. Still, were successful. Still, was going good. But just had no problem leaving. Uh, it's only been this season. As I'm saying, it's the first time in 58 years that I haven't had hockey 
and that's why we're heading to Florida for the summer. Taking the grand uh, tour. For the winter. Yeah. Exactly. So all my buddies out of Canada that always went to Florida for this for the winter. Hey, Linz, can't come on down for a week? I, I can't. I'm playing, you know. And stuff like, <laughs> so now I get to be a, a true Canadian, I guess. And that's great. You're a real south. snowbird now, right, even though exactly. you've been in St. Louis. Exactly. So oh. it, if they have enjoyed it, haven't missed it yet. Uh, wife seems to think there's going to be a void. And there is a void by being retired. Is that hockey took not only just being at the rink for a long time, but just the game plan, practice planning. What you'll find when you coach is that as a player, you had you you thought hockey while you were there, but it didn't linger much after you left the rink. A little bit for a while of a bad game or whatever, yep. but in general, an hour later, you're on to something else. They'll practice the next day. Coaching is 24-7. Oh, man, what if I had to move that guy over into this line? Or what if I, I mean, it's just 24-7. I can't get away from drawing up lineups or drawing up defensive pairs or who am I going to start in a net or, or, I mean, that just is consuming to a coach 24-7. So there's a lot of time now that I've got to put in without that. So what do you, what do you, what takes up that void? Because that's four, five, six hours a day, if not more, depending on whatever. So we're still trying to work out the, uh, the retirement the <laughs> schedule sort of thing. But it's a nice thing to be able to, now instead of working about drawing up lineups, I'm drawing up cruises that we're going to go on or whereabouts in the world we want to travel and stuff like that. So those are uh, those are as fun as coaching. That's a good feeling to have, yeah, isn't, it? isn't it? You've earned it. I think so, buddy. I yeah. think so. Well, on behalf of Bandanas, who hosted us today, this was lunch with gold goalies, I guess. <laughs> X. Yeah, X goalies. We're never old. No we're more. just former. That's former right. X, whatever. I like the way you look at it. Yeah. Lindsay, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to you. You taught me all the basics to it and the things we accomplished together. I can't tell you how much it meant because I don't have my career without you. So, Michael, I appreciate that. I tell you, it's, it's amazing to me to have been a part of your life and to see how so many things were paralleled, you know, and uh, best of luck with uh, the new adventure in Vegas. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.